This is Charles Christoph Carter of Serial Dreadfuls, and I'd like to welcome you to Episode 4 of Ghost Notes. What are Ghost Notes, you may ask? They consist of letters, emails, texts, and other communications that have found their way to us. We don't include the author's last names, and we alter their first names when asked to do so. Any emphasis in reading is added for dramatic effect. Are these accounts real, imagined, or simply works of fiction, take a listen. We'll let you decide. We received this ghost note as an actual letter from yet another listener in the Midwest. For his privacy, we've agreed not to use his first name. We'll call him Jim. My name is Jim, and I'm writing to you from a city I'd rather not name. I'll only say that it's in the upper Midwest of the country. I'm not trying to be cryptic. Far from it. It's that me and my family, we've been through a lot, and we just want to be left alone so that we can heal. It's my hope that my story will serve to warn others about the very real dangers that are around us all the time, how even the most innocuous and bucolic environment can hide monsters that lurk just on the fringes of what we call normal and mundane. It was almost a year ago when me, my wife Sarah, my older daughter Judy, and my little boy Abe went to vacation at a luxury log home located on the shore of one of the Great Lakes. I hadn't taken a vacation or any time off for that matter in several years. The constant moans of disappointment from my family every time I told them that I wouldn't be going with them on vacation had always made me feel bad, but each time I had justified my decision by telling myself that my little sacrifices now would pay off for us later. However, things this year were different. They had reached a tipping point. I knew I was in hot water when Sarah finally asked me what was the point of being a high-powered executive in a multi-billion dollar corporation if I never got to spend time with my family and actually enjoy the lifestyle my high-paying job provided. Somehow, I knew this was a make-it-or-break-it moment, not only in my marriage, but in my relationship with Judy and Abe. So, I told my assistant to clear my schedule for the month of July and to call me only if it was an absolute emergency. When I got home that night, I had three boxes of everyone's favorite pizzas in one arm and chocolate milk, soda, and ice cream for floats in the other. Sarah and the kids were ecstatic. We hadn't had a night like this in more than a year. They all nearly lost it when they found out I had taken a month off of work. I did have to condition the month off on the fact that I might have to occasionally take some calls and do some business every now and again. They didn't blink an eye. Once dinner was over and we were all stuffed, I slid the brochure for the luxury rental home across the table. Everyone's eyes grew big. What's this? they asked almost in unison. I sat back, put my hands behind my head and smiled. It's our home for the next month, I remember saying. Sarah and Judy squealed with delight. I remember Abe shooting his fist into the air, shouting, Yes! 
All three of them shot up from the table and mobbed me, hugging me so tightly that I was fighting for breath. They asked when we were leaving. I told them in two days. They seemed a little disappointed. That's when I brought up the fact that we all needed to go shopping for new gear and swimming apparel before we left. More squeals of delight and shouts of enthusiasm. Yeah, it was a good time. One of the last we'd have together as a family. We arrived at the rental home one day before July 4th of last year. We all got out of the rental car and stood in awe, looking at the house and property. The place was even more magnificent than the photos in the brochure. There was a giant deck off the back of the huge log home. It dropped down into a series of smaller decks, the last of which connected to a floating dock that extended about 20 feet out onto the lake. Sarah hugged me and whispered, Thank you, in my ear. Judy and Abe went bananas. They dropped their bags by the car and sprinted in the direction of the dock. Before they could go any further, I ordered them to stop and come back. They both returned, eyebrows furrowed, frowns on their faces. I told them that I wanted them to unpack before heading down to the dock, and even then, I wanted to take a look at the water before they jumped in to go swimming. As if on cue, Judy and Abe both rolled their eyes and groaned in protest. Those are the rules, guys, I remember saying. More animal grunts came from my children as they shook their heads in annoyance and lugged their bags up the stairs into the house. Come on, Jim, I remember Sarah saying as we continued embracing each other, swaying rhythmically back and forth. Let them have their fun. I will. It's just that big bodies of water like this can be dangerous. Sudden drop-offs, strong currents we don't know about. I just want them to be safe, I remember explaining. Such a worry wart, Sarah said admonishingly as she gently poked the tip of my nose with her finger. I remember giving Sarah a quick kiss on the lips and then playfully slapping her bottom as I headed down to the dock to check things out. I'll be back up in a sec, I called out behind me as I walked towards the lake. The wooden decks and dock were in phenomenal condition. As I stepped onto the dock, I took a look at the water below. The water was surprisingly clear and the ground underneath the surface sloped gently downward until the halfway point of the dock. After that, the water became ink black. There was only one thing that could mean, a sudden drop-off. I decided right then and there that I was going to do everything that I could to keep Judy and Abe out of that water. We had waterproofed both kids as infants, but I didn't like the look of this water. Years ago as a teenager, I had almost drowned in a lake that had looked surprisingly like this one. I learned later that in actuality, the lake was really a volcanic crater that had filled with rainwater over several millennia. It had been ringed by a sudden drop-off just like this one, and its water had an inky black hue just like this one. By the time I got back to the house, Judy and Abe were dressed in their swimsuits, towels over their shoulders, ready to hit the lake. I told them to hold on, that I didn't want them swimming in the lake, that I had seen some swimming pools by the clubhouse of the development we were in, that I'd take them down there to swim. Needless to say, this didn't go over too well. Not with the kids and not with Sarah either, who quickly came to their defense. Long story short, all parties reached a compromise on the matter. Since neither side was happy with the result, I took comfort in the fact that it was indeed a fair deal. The kids could go swimming in the lake on the condition that they didn't swim past the edge of the dock. Also, Abe could only go swimming if he was with Judy or if either Sarah or I were there to watch him. Judy and Abe were pissed for about 15 minutes. But as soon as it hit the lake, all was forgiven. 
The kids and I swam adjacent to the dock under Sarah's watchful eyes. We played Marco Polo and Jaws, with me, of course, playing the part of the man-eating shark. For the moment, at least, Judy and Abe were on their best behavior following the rules. Everything was going nice and smooth. Judy and Abe were sound asleep on a large, overstuffed leather couch in the living room, not two hours after having eaten dinner. Sarah and I smiled at each other and shook our heads as we watched over our slumbering children. We all got up bright and early the next day, July 4th. We made our way down into the heart of the little town we were staying in and watched the local parade. After all the pomp and circumstance, we walked over to a pasture which had been transformed into a fairgrounds. Tents were all around, selling everything from lemonade, fudge, and cotton candy, to patriotic t-shirts, hamburgers, and hot dogs. Everybody had a blast. Sarah even stumbled upon a bingo tent and walked away with $30 in cash. Needless to say, she made a few blue-haired enemies that day. Me, I had finally relaxed. I remember standing under the shade of a tree, sipping on a lemonade, looking so proudly at my little family. At that moment, like a bolt of lightning, the sudden realization that I didn't have to work anymore popped into my head. I remember having the epiphany that I could have retired five years before and have had more than enough money to put both Judy and Abe through college and still have had enough left for me and Sarah to live in the lap of luxury for the rest of our lives. And that was then. Within the last five years, I had been promoted twice and had received enough of my yearly bonus to make Warren Buffett blush red with embarrassment. What the hell was I doing still working? I remember asking myself. Again, I looked over at my son and daughter. For the first time, I realized that I was missing out on being there to watch them grow up. That if I didn't do something now, I wouldn't be there during the key moments in their lives. I also realized that my, quote, successful career was stealing time away from me and Sarah. Time we could use to rekindle and get back the type of love we had for one another right after we had first met. I knew that while I had admittedly missed out on a few things, a ballet recital here, a gymnastics meet there, I hadn't really missed too much. Things were still salvageable. I had decided at that very moment under that tree that I wasn't going to miss out on one more thing. I didn't have to. I would talk to Sarah about resigning from my job when we got back home from vacation and start the beginning of the rest of my life. I remember a wave of joy and relaxation coming over me like none I had experienced before. Sarah came walking up to me, a quizzical look on her face. What are you so happy about? What are you up to? I remember her asking. I just smiled that devilish smile I always gave her when I was up to, quote, no good. I grabbed her around her waist and spun her around as I kissed her. She whooped with surprise, which caused Judy and Abe to come running over to see what had just happened. What's going on? Both children asked. Your father's up to something, Sarah chuckled. I am, I remember stating proudly as I set her down and placed my fist on my hips. And I don't think he's going to tell us, Sarah teased. I most certainly am not, at least not now, I stated defiantly with as much melodrama as I could muster. You're strange, Dad, Judy quipped. Yes, I am, I replied with even more bravado and certainty. None of us could take it anymore. My persistent hamming cracked us all up. We spent the evening of July 4th eating s'mores on the deck of the log home and ooing and aahing at the fireworks display taking place over the lake. It was the happiest time of my life. For the first time, I realized I had really made it. 
that I could just enjoy my family for the rest of our lives, that we can enjoy each other for the rest of our lives. And then everything went sideways. Do you remember when Tupac got shot? I do. I was a sophomore in college. My roommate at the time told me that it had happened because Pac, as he said it, was trying to change horses in the middle of the race. That Pac was trying to go in a new direction when he had already dedicated himself to the lifestyle and direction that had gotten him to where he was. I remember my roommate saying that certain forces in the universe didn't take kindly to such actions, that doing what Pac had done amounted to a sort of cosmic dine and dash, and that anyone attempting it ran the risk of taking some serious damage in response. That, like in the case of Pac, it can mean your life or the life of someone you loved. A cosmic retaliation, for lack of better terminology. I had liked my roommate, but I had always thought he was a bit of a flake with all that touchy-feely New Age bullshit. But his words came back to me the night of July 5th of last year, and they haunt me still. The massive TV in the living room with a log home was playing some cartoon on one of the kids' channels. I hated those cartoons. They were nothing like the ones I had grown up with. Badly drawn and zero plotline as far as I was concerned. But Abe, he loved them. He'd run around the house at home pretending to be his favorite characters, pantomiming their dry, senseless routines, looking for a laugh from anyone nearby. Abe was seven, but a small seven. He had been born prematurely, and we had almost lost him a couple of times before we had been allowed to take him home from the hospital. What Abe lacked in size, however, he more than made up for in personality. He was even able to get his big sister to crack up despite her attempt to feign disinterest in what she termed his childish behavior, this coming from a girl who had just turned nine. The ring of my business cell phone, which had been silent up till now, broke my attention from the nonsensical ramblings of the psychedelic colored cartoon characters on the TV screen. Here we go again, I remember sighing to myself under my breath. This was the last thing I'd wanted to do. I'd rather have watched those ridiculous cartoons of Abe for the next 20 years than to have taken that call. As I put the phone to my ear, I casually glanced into the living room and saw Abe laying on the floor looking rapidly at the cartoon playing on the TV. Judy was with Sarah having a mother-daughter moment somewhere outside. Everything and everyone was in their place. It wasn't until I was about to end the call that I turned to look at the clock on the stove I had been on the phone for two whole hours. As I ended the call, I noticed that the place was silent. No inane babble from the show on the TV. No little boy racing around the place, cracking corny jokes and jumping off of the furniture. It was too quiet. Something was wrong. A terrible feeling formed in the pit of my stomach, and a fear that I firmly believe only a parent can experience. A fear for the well-being of one's child wrapped around me, constricting me like a straitjacket. The lake. He's in the lake. It was like a higher power had burned that message into my mind. Still clutching the cell phone, I bolted out of the house, the screen door slamming hard against the kitchen wall. I ran as fast as my feet would carry me, bounding down the decks to the dock. There he was. He must have been twenty feet past the edge of the dock. Son of a bitch, what the hell was he doing? He knew better. Sarah and I had told him. Boy, was he going to get it. He knew the rules. Like a fool, I had forgotten that I was dealing with children, a unique subset of homo sapiens that were characterized by their tendency to either forget 
or flat out ignore the rules that their parents or any supervising adult for that matter had set down in stone. Rules that they had agreed to only seconds, minutes, hours, or days before. He turned and waved at me, a giant ear-to-ear grin on his face. That's when I saw it. I slowed down to a jog as I saw a large air bubble form on the dark glassy surface of the lake about 20 yards from Abe. It suddenly burst, causing a circular ripple to extend outward across the lake. Something deep inside of me told me that death was just under the surface of that onyx-colored water. I launched into a full-on sprint, throwing the cell phone onto the dock behind me. It all happened in slow motion. Abe waving at me, encouraging me to come and join him, full-tooth grin on his face. Me, leaping off the dock out towards the lake. Abe being suddenly sucked down, a mass of effervescent bubbles, and a circular ripple, the only things left in his place. I hit the water and surfaced quickly. I was greeted by the edge of that very same ripple, the tepid water that pushed up my nasal passage and down my throat, the only goodbye I'd received from my son. I wanted to scream, to break down and weep, but I stifled all those feelings and instead swam like a maniac to the place I had last seen my son. I can't tell you how many times I dove down into that damnable water looking for Abe or at least some trace of him. As the time passed, I stopped entertaining the vain hope of finding Abe alive. I just wanted to find my boy, find his body, something that I could bring back to his mother, something that I could hold, touch, bury. But there was nothing. Through my tears and the water streaming down my forehead into my eyes, I saw the shapes of my wife and daughter on the dock. Call 911. It's Abe. Something got him, I called out. I remember seeing Sarah pick up the cell phone I had abandoned on the dock. I remember her voice going from frantic hurried tones to primal screams. It was police divers who finally dragged me to shore. They had to damn near knock me out in order to subdue me so that I wouldn't drown them along with myself. As they swam me to shore, they apologized for what they had done, telling me that my wife and daughter needed me, and that they weren't going to risk losing another life that day by having me drown out there from exhaustion. My arms and legs felt like limp noodles. My lungs hurt from holding my breath during the countless dives I had performed. My vision was blurry from opening my eyes under the water. You don't know the true feeling of failure or helplessness until someone you love dies because you weren't able to protect them, to save them from harm. Even more so, when you were there to witness it. When I saw Sarah, I literally fell at her feet, grabbing her ankles, begging her for forgiveness, attempting between sobs to tell her that something had taken our boy. I don't remember much after that. I woke up in the psych ward, where I had been placed under 48-hour observation. For a while, the police toyed with a theory that I had either intentionally or accidentally killed Abe and that I was trying to cover it up. The investigating officers all gave me a you've-got-to-be-shitting-me look when I told them about the bubble in the lake just before Abe got sucked down. None of them were buying what I was selling. After several months and no body, the police officially classified Abe's disappearance as an accidental drowning. And life went on. That's what eats you up when you've lost someone you love. 
The world keeps on turning and people go on with their lives. Of course, your friends and acquaintances care about your tragedy for the culturally appropriate length of time. But when you don't bounce back in the time frame they believe you should, you're viewed as strange, off, not quite right. Sarah and I ended up sleeping in separate bedrooms. We had to place Judy in intense counseling. She almost ended up having to repeat a grade. There I was, knowing that something had killed our little boy and not having a shred of evidence to support it. Even though Sarah put on a brave face, I knew in my gut that somewhere deep inside she blamed me for Abe's death and even suspected me of actually killing our son. She was pleasant but aloof, going through the motions. There was no love in her touch or her voice, no kindness towards me in anything she did. It was as if I was no longer a person. It was as if I had become a thing, like a plant in need of periodic watering. My grand idea of leaving my job happened, just not in the way I had imagined. The cost associated with the mental health care for me and Judy, along with the time I had to take off from work, resulted in the company letting me go. Be careful what you wish for, right? I'm no fool. I knew it was just a matter of time before Sarah left me and took Judy with her. As if to confirm what I already knew, I saw the name of a law firm come up on her cell phone when she had stepped out of the living room to get Judy her anti-anxiety meds. I looked the firm up later that evening when I was alone in the bathroom. It specialized in matrimonial law. Everything in my life had gone to shit. Every second of every minute of every hour of every day, I realized that I had less and less to live for. Ten months before the thing with Abe, I had re-upped a life insurance policy I had taken out on myself when Sarah and I had first gotten married. Over the years, and with the births of Judy and Abe, I had increased the value of the policy to its maximum. With what I had saved over the years and the life insurance policy, I was worth more dead than alive. Sarah and Judy would be set for the rest of their lives. Neither of them would ever have to look at my face again, and I could escape the constant nagging feelings of guilt, worthlessness, and being judged. As far as I was concerned, everyone came out a winner. If the policy were to pay out, I knew it couldn't look like suicide, so I decided to partake in what the English call death by misadventure. I'd make sure that I perished while engaging in some dangerous behavior that could be deemed reckless, but not necessarily suicidal. I took the older of the two Mercedes and drove to a flea bag motel three towns over. Like a man going to the gallows, I ordered my last meal, a pepperoni and sausage pizza with a two-liter cola from a local pizzeria. I would have loved to have gotten drunk, but it wouldn't have looked good on the autopsy report. Details, details. I remember sitting on the edge of that lumpy motel bed. Its garish floral comforter covered with so many stains that I couldn't tell which parts of the floral pattern were intentional and which were merely unidentifiable deposits that had been left by previous occupants over the years. I thoughtlessly flipped around the basic cable channels of the ancient television in my room as I reviewed my life and consumed what I believed to be my last supper. It was during this pre-suicide ritual that a man's voice with a refined English accent caused me to look up from the floor and at the television screen. It took me a while to realize what I was looking at. 
It was a documentary that followed a sports fisherman across the world as he tried to land mysterious and reclusive fresh and saltwater fish, alleged monsters of the water. Just as I was about to change the channel, one of the recreations stopped me cold. I was oblivious to the man's retelling of his account in his native Spanish, as well as the English subtitles that appeared at the bottom of the screen. It was the air bubble that broke the surface of the otherwise still water, followed by a large concentric ring that focused my attention with laser precision. The slice of pizza I had been holding fell from my hand, silently landing on the horribly patterned carpeted floor of the motel room. I watched, eyes wide for the next 40 minutes. I remember tears streaming down my cheeks as I screamed, I got you, motherfucker! I got you! Suddenly, I had an answer, a potential culprit for my son's death. I had a reason to live again, if for nothing more than finding and killing the thing that took not only my son from me, but my remaining family, my happiness, and almost my very life. I turned off the television, grabbed my things, and left that very night for the lake. During the drive up, I thought about the best way of going about finding and killing whatever the fuck that thing was that got Abe. I know, you're probably wondering what took me so long. All I can say is that it's easy to get sidetracked when you're trying to defend yourself against everyone in the world who thinks you're either a child murderer or an inattentive parent who was too busy with his job not to watch or save his own kid. You can actually begin to believe that it was your fault and that you didn't see what you know you saw. I got to the small town in the wee hours of the morning. I parked in the small parking area in front of the local hardware store and waited. Sleep must have overtaken me at some point because the muffled sound of men's voices approaching the car stirred me awake. I looked at the clock on the dash. It read 7 a.m. I watched as a husky, middle-aged man walked up the few stairs to the porch of the hardware store, unlocked the door, and stepped inside. I waited about 15 minutes, watching the fluorescent lights go on and the man putter about the store, finally turning the antique cardboard sign around on the inside of the glass door so that it read OPEN in red capital letters. I unlocked the car door and was about to step out when I was struck by a thought as if by lightning from the sky. Just what in the hell was I going to do? What, ask the store owner for a few sticks of dynamite and a couple of lighters? Yeah, that wasn't going to work. And if I didn't want Sarah to come and bail me out of the nearest state police barracks, I knew I'd better come up with a better plan than that. I settled back into the driver's seat, started the car, and headed to the local Greasy Spoon to get something to eat and come up with a better idea. I was tucked into a red vinyl upholstered booth halfway through a pile of corned beef hash and eggs when a man's voice cut through the din of conversation. It was the voice of an old man, but it was his accent that caught my attention, and soon enough, I could only hear his voice and the low voice of the man who was the other part of the conversation. I casually scanned the tiny restaurant until I spotted the two old men. They were seated a couple of tables over. They had finished eating and were now in what looked to be their fourth mug of coffee. Dumb bastard nearly blew his hand off, laughed the old man with the accent as he slapped his thigh. How'd he do it, Henry? asked the second man. He ain't gonna believe this one, Jake. The ignoramus took the black powder out of the firecrackers he had bought, packed it into an empty tin can with a homemade fuse, and lit it. 
Guess whoever he watched on the internets didn't know jack shit about making fuses. Cause Ray's fuse ignited almost as soon as he lit it, dumbass. Boy never was too bright, the other man added. It wasn't too long before the old man with the accent noticed me and nudged his friend under the table with his boot nodding in my direction. Both men looked at me curiously for several seconds before waving me over to their table. I was hesitant at first, not knowing what I might have gotten myself into. But their broad smiles and friendly faces put me at ease as I sat down at their table. It was the man without the accent, Jake, who broke the silence first. I've seen you before, last year, last summer. And then his words trailed off, and the expression on his face suddenly became sad and apologetic. The other old man, Henry, looked at his buddy quizzically. A second or two passed before the expression on his face too changed, changed to one of understanding. You're the fellow that lost his boy on the lake day after July 4th of last year, ain't you? Henry asked. I nodded. What in the world brings you back to these parts, mister? Asked Jake. Henry looked at me hard. He narrowed his eyes. Same thing that would have brought us back, Jake. This man here wants revenge on the thing that took his boy. My eyes went wide. It was as if time had stopped. How'd you know it was a... I began. Thing? Henry finished. Because Jake and me seen it, at least as much as we were able to. Years ago, when we were boys, damn thing almost ate Jake up. Jake looked at me knowingly and nodded in agreement. Lots of other people seen it too, but no one owned up to it. Shit, it's been forever since anyone from town has gone near that lake. No fishing, no swimming, no nothing. They keep to them swimming pools in town. What, you're telling me that everybody knew about this fucking killer catfish and no one said anything? I all but screamed. Lower your voice, son, Jake instructed in a voice a little above a whisper. The two old men looked around at the other diners. They didn't speak again until everything went back to normal. Henry leaned in close. First things first, that ain't no catfish that's in that lake. When I was a boy, I was out fishing on that lake and that son of a bitch came right under me. Its shadow was twice the size of the john boat I was on. Second, ain't nobody around here believes in that thing, at least not public, if you know what I mean. And third, tourism is the lifeblood of this community, so his royal highness, the mayor, and the town selectmen ain't going to fuck up the town's money by lending credence to there being some sort of creature in the lake. So it's okay if a few men, women, and children get taken out by this thing, just as long as everybody makes sure not to tell the tourists and hope that not too many of them get eaten, I asked incredulously. Look, son, I remember Jake saying, that's not our position but it does seem to be the position of the powers that be. Well, I'm going to kill whatever the fuck that thing is, or I'm going to die trying. I stood up, threw a wad of cash on the table, and stormed out. I had just started to pull out of my parking space when Henry and Jake came up and knocked on the driver's and passenger's side windows. I stopped the car and rolled the windows down. You're going to need some help if you're going to stand a snowball's chance in hell of killing that thing, Henry said. Follow us on over to my place. The sky was gray and it had started to drizzle rain by the time I pulled into Henry's gravel driveway and parked behind Jake's pickup truck. Inside Henry's house, there were pictures of Henry and Jake as young men wearing army fatigues, a cigarette casually hanging from each of their mouths. Even then, they were thick as thieves. In some of the other pictures, I noticed that they were posed with a few beautiful young Asian women. Korea? I asked. They both laughed so hard it took them a while to catch their breaths. Gosh almighty, how old do we look, son? 
Jake asked. Vietnam. There was nothing to do but farm here, and Jake and I both knew it was only a matter of time before we both got drafted, so we decided to enlist. Join the army for adventure, fortune, and fame, Henry remarked as he poured whiskey into three jelly jars. All we got for our trouble was a clap, jungle rot, and the ability to set off metal detectors everywhere we go, Jake chuckled. Henry handed me a jelly jar with a finger of whiskey inside. He looked hard into my eyes. I stared back, unblinking. Henry nodded his head solemnly. He cut his gaze to Jake. He's ready. Jake nodded in agreement. Here's the truth, son. Me and Jake, we've been through a lot, and we're old as dirt, but we ain't ready to die. At least not yet. We're going to help you, but you're doing this one solo, understand? I nodded my head. The three of us worked all day and into the night, jerry-rigging what Henry had laying around his property and whatever Jake could find on his. By 1 a.m., everything was set. We had three sealed 50-gallon drums wrapped with paracord. All three were attached to a line that itself was attached to a makeshift harpoon Henry and Jake had fabricated from metal fence posts and old lawnmower blades years before. So, let's go over it again. Drop the light into the water. We set it up to float. After that, splash the water with the paddle. Then get ready to harpoon to some of bitch, Henry instructed. What if it doesn't come? I asked. Oh, it's going to come. Splashing the lake water is like ringing the dinner bell for that monster, Jake answered. The light will allow you to see it better, Henry added. Once you stick it with a harpoon, it's going to run and try to dive down. The barrels will stop it from doing that or at least make it difficult, said Jake. That's when you light the fuse on this homemade bomb and throw it in the water as close to the barrels as you can, Henry finished. Then, boom, the sum of bitch goes up in a billion little pieces. Game over. You still sure you want to do this? Henry asked. I told Henry and Jake that I had to, that I couldn't stand to live another day knowing that this thing was still alive. I followed Henry and Jake to the lake. Each towed a boat behind their pickup truck. I helped the old man place the boat I was going to use into the lake. Jake handed me a flare gun. You get into trouble. You shoot this and we'll come and get you. I thanked Jake and Henry, got into the boat, and headed out into the middle of the lake. Its surface was glossy and black under the little bit of moonlight that pierced through the clouds of the overcast sky. I turned on the small LED flashlight, placed it in the weighted plastic milk jug, screwed its top down, and dropped it in the water off the starboard side of the boat. It must have sunk three to four feet beneath the boat, making the water beneath the boat glow a yellow-green. I took the knife Jake gave me and duct-taped it to my arm. I shoved the flare gun into my front left pocket. I then took one of the paddles from the boat and began gently splashing the water, trying to mimic the splash of someone or something swimming. One minute. Nothing. Five minutes. Nothing. After fifteen minutes, I was concerned that this whole thing had been a bust. The static squawk from the walkie-talkie I had on board cut through the sound of the water lapping up against the sides of my boat. It was Henry. He asked if I was okay. I told him I was, but that nothing was happening. Just then, I happened to look over the port side of the boat and into something large, black, and shiny just beneath the surface of the water. I stared at it for several seconds before a thin piece of skin flashed over it. It was an eye. 
the largest eye I had ever seen. I shot to my feet, harpoon in hand, and with all of my might, hurled it into the center of that lifeless black eye. The illuminated water instantly turned red and black with the creature's blood. Bubbles erupted from all sides of the boat as a massive clawed hand attached to an even more massive arm came out of the water and grabbed one side of the boat, tilting the vessel toward the water. In a moment of clarity, I quickly cut the paracord to one of the barrels and secured it to the anchor. It wasn't a moment later before the entire boat was dragged into the water by the creature. I made my way to the side of the boat that had not yet been submerged and slipped into the dark water, the whole time staring dumbstruck at the behemoth that had just destroyed my boat floating in the water not five yards from me. Fear flooded my body as I fumbled for the flare gun in my pocket. I grabbed it and shot off a flare, praying the whole time that Henry and Jake would get to me in time. The bomb that had been meant to destroy this ungodly monster was gone now on its way to the bottom of an allegedly bottomless lake. I looked frantically for the flashlight floating somewhere below me. I realized that it was the only way Henry and Jake were going to be able to find me on this vast stretch of water. I was going to have to retrieve it from the milk jug and use it to guide them toward me. Everything had gone to hell in the blink of an eye. I swam as silently as I could, scanning the water. It felt like an eternity but I was finally successful in finding the floating light. I nudged the plastic milk jug with my leg in an attempt to get both it and me away from the leviathan only tens of feet away. I quickly looked to my left and noticed that the two plastic 50-gallon drums were almost totally submerged. I could just make out the molded ridges of their sides as they periodically bobbed to the lake's surface. Just then, Something large and hard brushed by my leg. Before I could even realize what was happening, it felt like a vice was crushing my left foot. I cried out in agony. Instantly, my cries became muffled, and bubbles from my exhalation in the water surrounded me, and then began to float above me as the light from the milk jug began to dim, and the cold of the lake water ravaged my body. I was being dragged down into the lake. I tried to kick my legs, but only my right leg moved, my left leg fixed fast by the grip the creature had around my left foot. I had no idea how fast I was descending, but I knew that if I didn't get free from this thing's clutches soon, I'd drown before I made it to the surface even if I was able to get away. Using my right foot, I frantically stomped whatever held my left foot with all of my might. Finally, my descent slowed and I swam to the surface of the lake as fast as I could. The light from the milk jug seemed like a pinpoint. I leaned my head back, opened my mouth, and let the air escape gradually as I kicked and pulled with my arms for all I was worth. I instinctively inhaled just inches from the surface. Panic filled my body, and just before I gave way to it, I gave two more hard kicks. I could feel the cold night air on my wet skin as I struggled not to drown, coughing up the murky green lake water I had swallowed only moments before. My lungs burned, and I struggled against a primal panic that grips us all the moment we realize we're drowning. After several moments, I was able to calm myself enough to finally inhale the fresh night air. My chest heaved as I inhaled so much air that I thought my lungs would burst. Out of the corner of my eye, I noticed that both barrels had breached the surface again. Once more, 
I felt something too large to be a fish brush my legs. I screamed in panic horror and swam towards the plastic drums. I realized that the only things keeping the creature from being dragged to the bottom of the lake by the anchor-laden harpoon were the barrels. Underneath the water, I felt the current of something moving near me, beside me, and below me. I knew it was that thing. Coming back for a second time, both of us knew that I wouldn't survive another go-around. I could feel the adrenaline surge through me as a prickly electrical feeling went through every muscle of my body. As soon as I got to the first barrel, I tore the knife from the duct tape on my left bicep and began stabbing the barrel, puncturing it in an effort to fill it with lake water. After making six large cuts in the first barrel, I put the knife handle between my teeth and pressed myself up on the barrel, causing it to sink beneath the surface. Once I felt the hard plastic drift below my feet, I quickly made my way to the last barrel. Taking the knife from my mouth, I set into stabbing the last barrel like a man possessed. One, two, three stabs into the barrel. I could hear the sound of the lake water beginning to rush into the empty drum. As I was about to make my fourth stab, something told me to look down beneath the surface of the lake. Foolishly, I did. Beneath me, in the darkness, I saw a figure darker than the surrounding water, pulling itself to the surface hand over massive hand, using the rope attached to the barrel only inches from me. Each time the monstrous creature pulled itself upward, the barrel bucked, dipping below the surface only to bob back up. I went wild with terror and set in on the last remaining barrel with a vengeance, stabbing it and tearing at the openings with my bare hands, anything to help the lake water fill it faster and sink it beneath the surface. I threw myself onto the barrel, pressing down with all of my weight. As I did, I felt a massive hand grab me around my left thigh and yank me downward. Instinctively, I took a breath before I was dragged into the depths of the lake. To my right, I could see the barrel begin to descend toward the bottom of the lake. I bent over and began stabbing at the hand, wrist, and fingers of the monstrosity that was hell-bent on taking me with it to the crushing depths below. Without the barrels to act as buoys, the anchor dragged us downward at an alarming speed. I knew that if I didn't free myself in the next few seconds, I was as good as dead. I thought of my son having been devoured by this thing. I thought of my daughter without a father. I thought of how this thing had driven me to almost kill myself, and I thought of how it was trying to kill me right now. And anger rose within me, mixing with my will to live. Very quickly, it became a berserker rage. I stabbed, sliced, and hacked anything near and around my left leg. Soon, I felt the thing's sharp claws rake down my thigh, calf, and ankle. I could feel the tips of his claws fighting for purchase on the sole of my left shoe which I kicked off with my right foot. I shot to the surface of the water. As I breached, I screamed. It was a scream filled with victory and triumph, but also one filled with heartaching loss for my son. There he is, I heard Henry call out. Henry and Jake dragged me from the water and onto their boat. Lord Almighty, I remember Jake shouting. Call emergency services. We got to get him to a hospital quick, Henry, or he ain't going to last. The next thing I remember was waking up in a hospital bed. Judy curled up asleep in a chair, Sarah holding my hand, looking at me with a mix of contempt and love. You son of a bitch, 
She whispered through clenched teeth. We just lost Abe, and now you go and try to kill yourself? What the hell were you thinking? I tried to respond, but my lungs and throat burned. Instead of saying anything, I shook my head and mouth. No. I signaled her for a pen and paper. Sarah handed me a small pad and pen from the nightstand next to my hospital bed. She eyed me suspiciously as I wrote what happened. After a few minutes of writing, I handed her the pad. She read it through and then tossed it onto my bed. You really expect me to believe this bullshit? She whispered angrily. It's all true, I mouthed. I lifted the bed sheets and saw the bandages wrapped around my left leg. I pointed to it. The doctors say you got clipped by a boat propeller, probably from the one belonging to the two old men who found you and saved your life. There was a knock at the door. It was Henry and Jake. Sorry to interrupt, ma'am, but we're the men who found your husband. Henry began. Sarah walked over and hugged each man, thanking him. Henry glanced at the pad lying on my bed. He ain't lying, ma'am. Everything he's saying is the absolute truth. What? That a lake monster killed and ate my son and almost did the same to him? That he killed it? Please. My daughter and I both appreciate what you gentlemen have done, but, but I think it's time for you to go. Jake reached inside his coat and pulled out an empty mayonnaise jar. Floating in it was what could only be described as the top part of a large, gnarled finger. Its skin was green, yellow, and bumpy. Its fingernail was a massive, coal-black talon. We took this out of your husband's thigh when we rescued him, Henry replied. Sarah took the jar in her hands, captivated by its contents. With tears in her eyes, she turned to me. Is it true? Is this from the thing that killed our little boy? She asked, tears choking her words. I nodded. It's dead? I hope so, I mouthed. I don't think it's going to be causing anyone problems anytime soon, ma'am, Henry added. I have my life back now. After several surgeries on my leg and many weeks of physical therapy, I'm almost as good as new. Our family unit is back together. It's different without Abe, but it's good in its own way. Whether that thing is dead or alive, I truly don't know. What matters to me is that I was able to hurt it, if only a little, to bring a piece of it back to my family, since I wasn't able to bring my boy back to them. I still have that thing's finger and the mayonnaise jar filled with vodka. Sometimes, late at night, I go out to the garage and take a look at it, and pray that whatever the fuck that thing is, it's actually dead. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode of Ghost Notes, and would like to take this opportunity to thank you for your continued support. We couldn't do it without you. Now go forth and aid in the conversion of the uninitiated masses. Mm-hmm.